welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. And you're joining us today for the sixth and final part of our series entitled Strengthening Catholic Marriages. And what this series is trying to do is offer you practical steps that make a big difference in Catholic married life. And remember, these broadcasts aren't just for you. Uh, the best way to be blessed by God is to give away what's been given to you and share the truth that's been shared to you with another friend. You know, recently I was listening to a Catholic Answers episode, and a young wife and mother called in following the family synod, and you know, she asked a pretty penetrating question. She said, what did the synod do for my family? And what she was asking is like, I was looking for some practical help to get through this week, this month, this year. I need some help in my family life. And, you know, the family synod did seem to get sidetracked a bit by some bishops and cardinals who wanted just to talk about same-sex marriage and uh, adulterous relationships and receiving communion in that state and all that type of thing. And really what was left out a lot were the practical steps that could be offered to young families, to married couples. And so really what we're trying to do is, is plug a little bit of a gap here and offer practical help for strengthening your Catholic marriage as well as the marriages of your friends. Now, I have listed a whole host of things in this series, and they're available at dads.org if you'd like to go see them. But I'm going to talk about three things today, if we can get through them, that are final three steps, and they're important as all the rest of the steps we've mentioned in this six-part series. But the first thing I would like to talk about is that natural family planning instruction needs an overhaul. Uh, to begin with, it needs wider promotion. The fact that you are following the church's teaching in your marital sexuality can make a huge difference in your marriage. Why? You're not just following the church's teaching, you're following God's teaching. And the church is just teaching you how marital sexuality works in the design and the plan of your creator. And just like if you, I don't know, say try to drive your car without oil, it doesn't work too well because your car was designed to have oil when the engine is running. Same thing. You need to listen to the church's teaching because it's telling you what the creator has done. And it's the creator has something to do with marital sexuality. That's his gift. Now, it can make a big difference in a marriage but a lot of Catholics would have a very hard time believing that because there's been a lot of silence about natural family planning from pulpits. Dr. Kim Hardy, a faithful Catholic physician, an OBGYN, he has stated that bishops and priests need to promote 
natural family planning, the teaching of it, and why it's important, at least annually. In other words, at least once a year, this needs to be addressed, not just in a disciplinary way, but in a way that shows the beauty of marital sexuality. Dr. Hardy told me that he wanted to set up a faithful Catholic medical practice, OBGYN medical practice, but in order to do so, he had to have a bishop and priest who would promote the church's teaching, or else he wouldn't have any customers. And there has to be a synergy here between what's heard in the church and what people seek in their medical advice. So it needs wider promotion. Along with that, natural family planning needs an overhaul in the method of instruction. And I shouldn't say the method of instruction, I'll just say how it is portrayed to young couples because the instruction itself is is five stars. But there is a common defect in the way that natural family planning has been presented over the last 20 years, I'd say. And it's actually, this defect is now catching up um, to those promoting it, and it's this. Natural family planning will lose its influence over married couples, especially young married couples, who are unprepared for its challenges. Imagine a seesaw. A seesaw represents balance. It's the hardest thing to do in life. It's the hardest thing to do as a teacher. It's the hardest thing to do as a radio broadcaster. Balance. And if you, re- if you look at the natural family planning seesaw, to portray it accurately, one would, on the one side of the seesaw, present all of its benefits, but you want to balance the seesaw with its challenges. And here's why. If you're just telling young couples the wonderful benefits of natural family planning— and are either downplaying or perhaps even ignoring its tough challenges, and there can be tough challenges to couples to practice natural family planning, they are going to be sorely disappointed, and they're going to feel jaded, and they're going to wonder if this thing altogether needs to be ditched. No, there are challenges to natural family planning, and we don't hear it enough. And I'm not saying just present the challenges. I'm saying present the challenges and the benefits in a balanced fashion. Now, along with that, I generally get nervous when I start telling folks over the air how to teach things to men because it's not commonly done real well, honestly. And so what I say sometimes sounds very uh, kind of shocking or unusual or radical or whatever. But just hear this, natural family planning needs more realism and more muscle in the way it's presented to men. Now, I have spoken to conferences and seminars of Catholic men all over North America, 
and it hasn't happened lately. I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was a change of leadership, but one of the national organizations that promotes natural family planning used to shadow me wherever I went because I realized for Catholic families and Catholic fatherhood to really survive in the modern world, men are going to need to hear about natural family planning. So I would come and challenge the men to follow the church's teaching, and I would encourage one of the national organizations to have a class not too long after we would have our men's conference, and during the break I would invite a representative, a male representative of that organization, to come up and invite the men to the classes that would be coming up, along with their wives, of course. But so often, and I realize this is a little touching on toes and maybe a little sensitive, but so often the representatives would come up and be telling the men of the subjective benefits of natural family planning abstinence periods and that it really develops marital communication and really enriches and strengthens a relationship. And let me emphasize, that is entirely true. But for guys who kind of just watch football and go to work and don't specialize in this, and if this is the first time they hear it, and this is the kind of pitch for the classes, they're hearing how wonderful it is that they will not be having marital relations as much as they're used to. And it's like, what planet did this person just come from who's invited me to these classes? Now, I would suggest the way to recruit men, and I'm talking men now particularly, because I think the subjective benefits may have quite a bit of influence with the wives, and they're certainly true. They're there. I'm not denying them. I'm saying, how do you recruit men to these classes? How do you get men to even listen to you so they don't check out if they're even in a class? And I'm saying the moral muscle has to be presented to the men. Let me tell you about a real situation that happened to me. I was speaking at a Catholic men's conference in Canada, and the organizer said, uh, I want to take you to the airport. I said, don't bother. I said, you know, I do this so much, I certainly can get myself to the airport. I don't want to interrupt your work schedule and all. Oh, no, no, I really, well, let's have breakfast together and I'll take you to the airport. I said, okay. So we got to breakfast. He didn't even want to eat, and I'm sitting there eating and he said to me, Steve, I was reading your book, Christian Fatherhood. I got to chapter 10. That's the chapter about birth control and natural family planning. He said, Steve, I got to chapter 10, and that thing hit me on the back of a head like I was hit by a two-by-four. And he was just weeping. He said, this entirely changed my life. This changed my Catholic life. This changed my marriage. And the day before, I had been in his home uh, taping. I had a professional crew in there, and we were taping in his kitchen. And I had never been in his home before or since. I've probably been in his home a grand total of maybe an hour or two hours in my entire life. And while I was in his home, 
the time between he read chapter 10 of Christian fatherhood and got hit on the back of the head by a moral two-by-four, he voluntarily, he wasn't required to, he had his vasectomy reversed, and his wife Mary was upstairs in the home at that very moment and discovered she was pregnant with another child, which they cherish entirely. And this man was the organizer for all the other Catholic men so that they could hear about the church's teaching. Now, you take the soft and subjective and whatever approach, you start with men, men respond to moral muscle. This is the right thing to do. And then along with the right thing to do, you give them solid reasons. And again, I would not extol the abstinence periods in an attempt to sell this to men, but what I would share directly is how birth control will inevitably create selfishness in marriage. And basically, this is chapter five of Christian fatherhood. And Jim Burnham and I, when we wrote the book Christian Fatherhood, we knew what was coming in chapter 10 on birth control and natural family planning. We knew it was the most important chapter in the book for this moment in history. But we also know that a lot of times people get squirmy, in fact, maybe go even into shock when you start talking about birth control and natural family planning. So what we did is separate the final chapter by five chapters and talked about selfishness in marriage. Now, if you're on your honeymoon and I'm talking about selfishness in marriage, you have no idea what I'm talking about, probably. But if you've been married more than three months, you know exactly what I'm talking about as far as selfishness in marriage. I mean, one of the things, my great discovery being married, I didn't think I was selfish at all. And all of a sudden, marriage taught me, you know, I'm a lot more selfish than I thought I was. And, and, and what sin does to us, and this is what I did to the men, I spelled out sin with, a, with my finger, a small s, and then I'd skip the I and go to the N, another small n and then draw with my hand a huge, bloated, egomaniac eye. Sin makes egomaniacs out of otherwise nice, loving people. And we basically dealt with that. That's the enemy in marriage. And then when we got to natural family planning and birth control, we tried to show how birth control increases the selfishness in marriage, which gives rise to all the conflicts in marriage. And nobody likes that. And then on the other hand, every marital act done the right way, the creator's way, open to life way, that increases marital love and decreases that selfishness, hence marital harmony. Guys get that, okay? It's the right thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. Where do I sign up? Got it? Okay. Let's talk about another one here. Uh, by the way, there could be a book on this, and there probably is, but uh, that'll be enough to get you going. Uh, I'd like to talk about sacramental appropriation. That's too big a word, I guess, but here it is. Very often, our sacraments, which are the diamonds of the Catholic faith, are ignored when it comes to our marriages. Now, I still am kind of consider myself a newbie, even though I've been in the 
Catholic Church for 24 years, I'll tell you the most amazing thing, and I'm particularly speaking as a former Protestant pastor, is the sacrament of confession. Now, I must say, it's my least favorite sacrament to look forward to. You have to go and confess your sins out loud to a priest. This is humbling. That's good. See, it makes the eye in sin grow smaller. That makes the marriage grow stronger. But in any case, guilt makes all of us go haywire. You know, in Genesis, after original sin, I mean, it wasn't this... He didn't even have to turn the page, and Adam was blaming Eve for the mess he got himself into. That's what sin does. And the guilt from sin causes us to have dysfunctional relationships. If we want to have healthy relationships, we need to get rid of guilt. And listen to me. I have spent time as a Protestant pastor, and the hardest and most consistent problem where good people did some really sinful things that they deeply regretted, and yeah, they confessed it themselves to Jesus, but the guilt kept coming back to them. And to see what five minutes in a confessional could do to have that objective end to that sin, and when you have the end to that sin and the guilt remaining from that sin, you have stable relationships. It's like turning... Adam's blaming Eve for all his problems backwards, and you start expressing grace to each other. Confession is such an important part of having a healthy marriage. And, you know, one of the things that's a great thing to do, like, don't get me wrong, but you should have a certain amount of uncomfortableness in going to confession in a sense. It should be hard because it's hard on the ego. That's great for you. The heart on the ego makes you more charitable person. And after you go to confession, it's a great idea to extend grace and ask forgiveness from your spouse. If you do that, just that, just that. Don't have to read my book. You don't have to listen to any more of my broadcast. Just do that. Go to confession and afterwards express forgiveness to each other. I think it'd be very hard to get divorced. I think it'd be very hard to get divorced. Because you wouldn't have the sin, the selfishness, the guilt, and the unbalanced nature within a relationship stemming from all that. Go to confession. It's good for your marriage. Now, along with this, you know, this one shocked me. But as a new Catholic, I started going all around the country telling people, I have just figured out something that can really energize a marriage, something that can really put grace and charity and love in the middle of a marriage, even one that's struggling. And people go, Where, where's that? You know, where's that book? You know, and all this type of thing. And what actually just shocked me is that married couples didn't read what great popes like St. John Paul II said about marriage. You know, the Family Synod in 1980 asked Pope John Paul II to do a little something for families, and a year later he came out with the fruits of that Family Synod, the role of the Christian family in the modern world. 
and I'm going to quote from it. I have it right here on page 74 of my book, Christian Fatherhood, but you can get this right off the internet right now. But this is what he said. The Eucharist is the very source of Christian marriage. He ever thought of it that way? The very source? In this sacrifice of the new and eternal covenant, Christian spouses encounter the source from which their own marriage covenant flows. In other words, let's think of the Amazon River, not the one that is going to have um, little things flying around the air dropping your packages, but the long river, okay? Your marriage is supposed to last. The reason it can last it can tap into the source, just like you can trace the source of the Amazon River to its beginning, its very beginning. And from that beginning, it receives the energy it needs to become a great and mighty lasting river. What's that source? The Blessed Eucharist, the source from which their own marriage covenant flows. Because what happens is in the Eucharist, we're tapping into the eternal covenant, the divine covenant between Christ and his church, and we personally are tapping into that, and as we do, that overflow can come into our marriage. Now, St. John Paul II concludes, the Eucharist is a fountain of charity. This isn't the Dead Sea with a bunch of salty water without life and whatever. This is a fountain. In other words, there's more than enough and this is exactly what Jesus showing up in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. 120 gallons plus of ceremonial water, which meant it was used externally in the Jewish religious rites to try to really get rid of sin and really try to help the person. But Jesus is going to transform that water miraculously into wine. And the wine represents those graces of the new covenant particularly as they come to us in the Eucharist. And from that is why you have Christian marriage. That's why God, through Moses, allowed divorce for the hardness of hearts in the Old Testament. But something changed quite clearly with Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. And rather than you know, proposing giving communion to people who have uh, been divorced and remarried outside the church, what we need to do is have married couples connect their marriages with the Blessed Eucharist. When was the last time you went to Mass and maybe you had a tough week in your marriage? Now, you think you have to go to Mass and kind of hide it from God? He knows all about your marriage, inside and out. But when was the last time you went to Mass and tried to connect your marriage to the healing graces, the charitable graces, the fountain of graces, the everlasting graces in the Eucharist for your marriage? This is what we call sacramental appropriation. The other thing would be just neglecting the diamonds that Christ has given his church to help you. And I've just mentioned a couple, but confession and the Eucharist are right there at the top. This is wonderful stuff. Now, somebody might say, well, you know, I go to Eucharist all the time and, you know, it really hasn't uh, helped a whole lot. And I and Jim Burnham get into this in Christian fatherhood. But have you ever heard of expectant faith? 
rather than neglecting your faith and taking your sacraments uh, for granted, expectant faith, expecting God, asking God as you receive these sacraments to give you the grace of forgiveness um, for your own sins and to be able to extend that to others and the one you love the most on earth, to extend that to him or her as well. Um, because grace doesn't flow when there's unforgiveness in our hearts, by the way. It just doesn't work. And finally, if we're spiritually dead, what the church calls mortal sin, it creates death in our souls. And you put the life-giving Eucharist in a dead soul, it doesn't help you. In fact, it hurts you. That's why the church says if you're in a state of serious sin, you go to confession first, then you partake of the blessed Eucharist. And there are fountains of charity just waiting for you. Lastly, and this kind of sets us up for a new mini-series that I'll be starting next week on transformative parenting. I've done a series on that, and I've been asked to basically make a more condensed, and I'm hoping a harder-hitting series on the same topic. But transformative parenting, I basically was sharing with parents and catechists, it does no good to put a child in a classroom for eight years and try to fill them full of information or have them go through certain acts or certain classes without reaching the interior life of that child. The, the, the transformation of the heart needs to take place. Well, that's the same thing when it comes to pre-cana. Not only are children coming to their sacraments, their first communion and, and confirmation, coming to those sacraments without a personal attachment to Christ, they're coming all the way to pre-cana, where they're basically, they have been baptized and received the, the seed of all these graces within their hearts, but it needs to be awakened. And believe me, there's a lot of young couples coming to pre-cana just because they want a church wedding or whatever. Let them have their church wedding, but make sure they get something else. And it can be summarized in a five-letter word spelled J-E-S-U-S. What pre-cana couples need more than following a bunch of class requirements and all, and I'm not saying it's wrong to have class requirements, but in the midst of everything, they need Jesus, the one who came to the wedding of Cana, the friend of the bride and the bridegroom. Have couples come in and give personal testimonies about how Christ has made a difference in their marriage. You've been listening to episode 50 of Faith and Family. Visit us on the web at dads.org or familylifecenter.net. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.